It's a joy to be with you guys this morning. Um, as was said earlier, Pastor Brian's enjoying time with his family, and we love to be able to free him up to do that. That man pours out himself for this church, as we all know, and um, I'm constantly stimulated to be a better shepherd because of his example. So we pray he comes back uh, rested and encouraged. Well, as you can see, we're going to take a break from Romans today and head over into 1 John. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. And I have the joy of shepherding our college and career folks. And we've been studying this letter on Thursday nights for quite some time. I think it's been about a year. And we have experienced so much blessing from this letter that I just wanted to give you guys the outflow. Give you a little taste of um, how the Lord's been working in our hearts, convicting us, encouraging us. And uh, so we as a college ministry want to be a blessing to you today. We want to let this flow out on you. And as we're thinking about 1 John, um, one of his central themes in the letter is the theme of love. It's the theme of love, both God's love for us and our love for each other. Some of the most beautiful, the most moving, and the most convicting expositions of love are in this little letter. And we know that love is one of his central themes because it appears again and again in these chapters, especially chapters 3 and 4. In those two chapters alone, did you know that John tells the church to love each other seven different times? Is it in chapter 3, verse 11, verse 16, verse 18, verse 23, then in chapter 4, verse 7, 11, and 21? So John was clearly concerned. He was clearly burdened that we learn to love, and that this church learned to love its members. In fact, you might even say that that's one of his greatest, greatest burdens in this letter. But why? What was on his heart, and why does he repeat himself so often in this letter? Well, we could probably give several reasons to answer that question. We could look at the background of what was going on in, in the church in John's day, and the false teachers, they were in the midst of a split, and false teachers had left, and they were still influencing the church. So that was definitely a major motive for the, the, the writing of this letter. But for our purposes this morning, I just want to draw out one reason I think he echoes this theme again and again. John knows that love is difficult. He knows... I was waiting on that, Ashton. Waiting for you. He knows that it's hard. That's because biblical love is not just a feeling that bubbles up out of us sort of spontaneously, as we might like to think. It definitely has feelings attached to it, but love is a deliberate choice to sacrifice ourselves for the good of others. It's a deliberate calculated choice to lay ourselves down for the good of others. To love others means that we have to deny ourselves, doesn't it? It cuts against the grain of our flesh. In fact, in our flesh, we would rather give excuses for why we can't love than actually just love, right? It's so tempting to throw in the towel when we've been hurt by other people. It's tempting to look for another church. It's tempting to just stay at home on Sundays after we've been betrayed. And not only is love hard, but sort of the culture of wider evangelicalism doesn't help us here either. The expectation that church life involves committing to each other like this is so foreign to the evangelical church today. This wider church culture has reduced life in the church to coming to hear a sermon, singing some songs, and then leaving. Now, hearing a sermon, singing songs are vitally important. I'm not saying those are not important. 
But we're tempted to envision church in terms of our personal relationship with Jesus and our individual growth as Christians without giving much thought to our obligations toward each other. We're tempted to stay on the surface in our relationships, to keep people at arm's length, to leave if something makes us uncomfortable. We're tempted to stay uncommitted, loosely attending here and there when it's convenient. We sometimes pick and choose. We go to one church for, for one study, another church for another thing. That's because we don't fully realize that Christ intends us to be radically committed in love to a particular body. So seven times, John commands us, John commands this church, to love each other. But love is hard, like we've said. And that implies that we need some serious motivation to do the hard work of love. And as we're going to see today, John intends to motivate us to do this very thing. John doesn't just command love and then just leave it. He gives us the necessary truth, what we might call the convictions that are, that are needed, that we believe and wholeheartedly embrace, so that we will bend out, that's what we're calling the love of God. God has loved us, this is the central theme of this passage, He's loved us so that we would not hoard that love, but would bend that love out to others in the body. So this morning I've boiled down John's teaching on love in this passage into four convictional statements, we might say, or just four convictions about our love for the church. And these are convictions that we've got to know. We have to believe them if we're going to do the hard work of love, if we're going to love like Christ, if we're going to actually lay our lives down for each other over the long haul. Four convictions, and here's the first one. We could say love for the church, we've got to know that love for the church is God's tender expectation for every believer. God expects us, in other words, to love the church. He expects every single one of us to love the church. Nobody gets a pass. John writes about this in the the opening of verse 7. Look with me if you would. He says, Beloved, beloved, let us love one another. Beloved, let us love one another. Now John's opening this paragraph with a gentle reminder a tender exhortation that we go on loving each other right here in the church. We can hear his tenderness even in the way he commands us, can't we? Notice he, he, he leads with calling us beloved, reminding us of our identity in Christ. This is a simple and yet very profound title for the people of God. He's saying, you people who are loved by God, you loved ones, as loved ones, let us love. He's getting at the fact that we have already experienced the love of God. And that's going to be huge in the rest of this passage. He's giving us a little foretaste here. And it's precisely as these loved ones, as God's beloved, that God calls on us to love. So you hear that tenderness. But it's also impactful that he puts himself under his own command. Do you notice that? He didn't just say, okay, you should love. That would have been totally appropriate. John is an apostle. He can command with the authority of Christ. But John says, let us love. I think this implies it that no one, not even John, is exempted from this command. It's for every single believer here today. It's his top agenda item, in other words. This is the top of his priority list for our lives. And that means, if it's at the top of God's list, then he's going to be working every circumstance in your life toward the fulfillment of this command. He's going to be working the good and the bad, toward making us better lovers of others. 
So we need to align our expectations with God's for life. And if love is God's tender expectation for all of us here today, then we need to ask ourselves this question. Is God's love for you tenderizing you to the point that love is spilling over in your interactions with TBC members? Has God's love tenderized you to the point? Is it tenderizing you to the point that this love is spilling over? It's motivating you to bend out that love in the body right here at TBC. So ask yourself some questions. Are you quick to see the grace of God in the lives of others? Or do you more easily see their faults and their weaknesses? Do you encourage and affirm with your words, or are you more critical? Are you rarely aware of how your words are impacting others? Are you sensitive to the needs of others when you come to church? Or are you just hyper aware of yourself, preoccupied with what's going on in your life, your needs, and then sort of subtly expecting that you're coming to be served while you're here? Are you willing to invite others into your life and into your home if you have one? Or are you afraid that you might get taken advantage of? Whether you might serve to the point where you're burned out. Are you patient with others whose sin might hurt you at times? Or are you easily offended and critical? Do you confront graciously when that needs to happen? Are you willing to do that out of love? And are you willing to freely forgive? Or do you take that offense, bury it, hold a grudge? So these are just a few questions to get you thinking practically about how God's love should tenderize us. That's His intention, should tenderize us and spill out into our life in the body. And I don't want you to get the wrong ideas I'm asking these questions, okay? We see you, the pastors of Timberlake see you loving each other and loving each other well. There are countless examples. We hear them on an on a almost daily basis as they come through the office um, about what, what's happening, what you guys have done. We hear testimony about it all the time. And so you can think of these questions, and this message as a whole is a, as an Excel still more message, or a, it, like Paul's prayer in Philippians 1.9, a prayer that, you would, that your love would abound more and more as we continue in life. So John calls on us here as the beloved of God to now show that love tangibly to each other. It's his tender expectation. And knowing that he expects it of us motivates us to love each other. But he goes on in his argument to heighten the significance of love in the church. Okay, so that's it's good to know that it's, he expects this of us. But now John raises the stakes a bit, and that brings us to our second conviction. We've got to know. We've got to know that love for the church directly impacts our assurance. Love for the church impacts our assurance. So you might be saying, how does it it do that? Well, John says in verse 7 that it's the presence of love. It confirms our new birth. Love shows that we really have been born again that we really do belong to God, that God really is our Father, when we love other people. He says in verse 7, he says, Love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Love's from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So its presence in our lives confirm the new birth. John says that since love's origin is from God, then it follows that those God makes his children will also become like their parent. They will love too. And that's exactly what John says here. The presence of love in our lives, when we love others, this confirms our new birth. Now notice that I said confirms. That's important. I didn't say that love makes us born again. 
or that love earns us the new birth. It does not. What John says is that love shows that someone, listen to it, has been born again. In other words, they've already been born again by God. And their new nature, this, their children now, this new nature is why they love. This means then that there was one time in our lives when we did not truly love other people. We've got to be humble about this. We may have acted like we did. We may have done some really selfless things, but it wasn't motivated by the gospel because we didn't understand the gospel. We weren't humbled and tenderized by God's love for us. Instead, we loved others so we could get something from them. We loved with a selfish motive or selfish ends in view. But now God has freed us from all that. He's freed us so that we can love truly. We love now because we've been tenderized by His Gospel. We're learning to meet needs now because we're overwhelmed by what God has done for us in Christ. And if this is the case for you, this is true about you. This confirms that you've been born of God, that you belong to Him, that you have a new nature, a new impulse to love that you didn't have before. Because you act like your father does. But the corollary is also true in this passage. If we don't ever really love others, if we're not tenderized by the gospel, that shows us something, John says. He says its absence reveals that we don't know God. In verse 8. If there's a lack of love in the church, it reveals those people don't know the God they claim to know. Verse 8. Anyone... Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. <clears throat> so John uses the same logic, but he just gives us the negative side of the equation. John's saying if we habitually don't love other people, then we can know that we don't love God, no matter what we might think about ourselves. Again, What's John not saying? He's not saying that if we've struggled to love other people that we don't know God. Or he's not saying that if we don't love others perfectly we don't know God. He's saying if love for the church that springs up from this gospel motive, if love for the church isn't the pattern of our lives, if it's absent, then we don't know God. Now you might be thinking, Clay, I, I do some good things every now and again. But if I'm honest, my life is consumed with myself. I constantly compare myself to others. I live in perpetual jealousy. I don't really ever think about what others need because I'm so consumed with myself. If I do something for God, it's so that He likes me or because I feel guilty if I don't do it. Now, if you're thinking thoughts along those lines, don't tune out here. John is warning you that you are likely not a Christian. And that is the best news that you can hear right now in this moment. I know it sounds terrifying. Why is it the best news? Because John wants you to see it. That's why he wrote it down. He doesn't want you to live in deception. John wants to drive you into the merciful arms of God so that you come to truly experience the free love of Christ so that you receive the new birth. Your solution, if this is you, is not to try harder to love so that God is happy with you and you can relieve your conscience. That would be the wrong response. The solution is to realize you don't know the gospel. You don't know this Christ of love like you think you do. So the response would be to humble yourself to come to Him with empty hands and experience the depths of His love. Because it's His love, His love of us first, that enables us to love. It's when we experience His love for us in Christ that we are tenderized. And that is gloriously good news 
for those of us who have not loved. So flee to Christ and entrust yourself to His love in this very moment. So John's point in these verses is that love impacts our assurance. That's kind of where he's angling at. And we've got to know that. Love's not some sort of peripheral thing we can do out there. It's a a make-or-break issue for our lives. And knowing that is an incredible motivation to love. So you're thinking, well, how? What what do you mean? Let's flesh this out just a second. Let me give you an example. All right? Let's pretend, hypothetical, that another church member says something about you behind your back, and it gets back to you. That never happens, right? You can laugh. It happens sometimes. You're hurt, naturally. You could leave TBC, or you could stay here and maybe switch Sunday school classes and just kind of bury it and nurse a secret resentment against that person in your heart. And that's really tempting if you don't like conflict. Who does, right? You probably don't want to think hard about what would be most loving to that person who gossiped about you in that moment. Which means then you need some incentive right now to do the hard work of love. But what would happen if you took this little verse from 1 John, even this right here from verses 7 and 8? You took that and you said, you take a deep breath first, kind of what you have to do in self-talk. Deep breath. You say, even though this is painful, I know this is a God-sent opportunity to love, and not just to love, but to actually increase my assurance. If I do the hard thing here, if I try to have a conversation with this person, and if I forgive them, I am loving them like Christ has loved me. And if I love them like that, then it's showing that I am a real Christian. It's demonstrating that I really do believe the Gospel. But if I don't, If I choose to ignore this and run from the problem, if I choose to seethe in unforgiveness, I'm acting more like an unbeliever than a believer. And if I am unwilling to forgive over the long haul as a pattern of my life, it may reveal I really don't believe the Gospel at all. You feel the stakes rising now, don't you? According to John, that's what should happen. Love is an incredible opportunity to confirm your new birth. You can know, you can really know that you're of the truth when you love like Christ. And we're not saying perfectly, but when you take that step by faith, that didn't come from you. That came from a new nature that God has given to you by His grace. So you don't have to wonder. And that's an incredible blessing. All right? So love for the church, it impacts our assurance. And that leads us to our, our third conviction that's got to be there, and it's really the heart of this passage. And it's love for the church is based on the magnitude of God's love toward us. Love for the church comes from somewhere. It springs up from the love of God toward us. It's, or we could say, it's, like I said here, it's based on the magnitude of God's love toward us. Look with me in verse 9. Verses 9 and 10, you'll notice these are sort of parallel statements right in the middle of this passage. Verse 9, In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Love for the church, John's saying, is based on the magnitude of God's love toward us. So if you were just reading through this passage and you came to verse 9, you might think, okay, understand it's still about love, but it seems a little bit out of place. What's John doing here? He just kind of all of a sudden starts talking about God's love and what God's done in sending Jesus. 
What John is doing is he's pulling us in to a close-up look at God's love manifested. At how it's displayed. He's describing the magnitude of it toward us. He wants us to see the depths that God has gone to love us. But why? Because John knows, he knows, that we need a robust understanding of God's great love for us if we're going to be lovers of others. We're going to love the church. We're going to love our spouse. We're going to be patient and love our children. We need a robust understanding of God's great love for us. And John takes the time in the middle of this passage to unpack exactly how God has shown His love for us because He knows that we're prone to misunderstand. He knows our hearts are prone to doubt God's love, especially as we suffer in this world and encounter difficulty in these last days. We're often tempted to entertain harsh and hard views of God. We feel abandoned by Him at times. We feel alone. And we're tempted to doubt. Or we begin to fall prey to the idea that God's love is like ours. That it's fickle. That it changes. That it's subject to the whims of the moment. And this doubt is only compounded when we disobey. We know that we've displeased Him and we are tempted to think He's frustrated. We fear coming to Him because we're unsure of how we'll be received. We envision Him as putting up with us tolerating us in our weakness, holding us at arm's length. And we might not say it out loud, but we function as though our relationship with Him is contingent on our obedience. We try to do better. We try to get back in His good graces. We may even try to tell ourselves the Lord loves us, but our hearts immediately produce a hundred reasons of doubt. A hundred reasons why He shouldn't. And so we go on living with an undercurrent of uncertainty in our hearts. We may even begin to resent the Lord because we feel perpetually defeated, perpetually guilty, and constantly weighed down. John knows our hearts are tempted to doubt the love of God. This isn't the first time he does this in the letter. He does it multiple times in this letter. He knows that this doubt, if we doubt the love of God, this is a hindrance to our own love for others. So he spells out for us exactly how God has loved us. Keep it easy to follow. I'm going to draw out just a few attributes of God's love that we can see from these verses. Initially, we see that his love for us is an initiating love. It's an initiating love. John says in verse 9 that in this the love of God was made manifest among us that, how did he make it manifest? How did he display it? That God sent his only son into the world. Then in verse 10, he repeats that same idea. And this is love. Fast forward. What? That God sent his son into the world. So he repeats that idea. So who took the initiative in this text? God or man? God did. God's the one doing the sending of His Son. Since God is love and since love comes from God, it only makes sense that He initiated and accomplished our salvation alone. He took the first step toward us by sending His Son. He didn't wait on us to ask. He didn't wait on us to become lovely. His love is manifested or put on display by the fact that He took the initiative to love us by sending His Son. But notice He didn't just say His Son, at least not in verse 9. He said, John said, that God sent His only Son. Now that's significant. It means that His magnificent love is infinitely costly. It's a costly love. When John writes of Jesus being his only son in verse 9, it's important to realize that he's 
likely echoing a theme in the Old Testament. In Genesis, it's Isaac that's called Abraham's only son. And God asked Abraham to sacrifice him. In that story, Isaac's the unique son of promise. That's the idea. He's the unique son of promise. And as his unique son, Abraham dearly loves him. That's repeated several times in that account. Isaac is loved by Abraham. So here, that Jesus is God's only son shows that he is both unique and loved. There is no one like Jesus. He is the highest love of the Father. That God is willing to send His only Son. That tells us something about the love of God, doesn't it? It tells us that God is infinitely generous, infinitely sacrificial in Himself. It tells us that God will literally spare no expense to redeem His people, and to make good on His promises. There was no pain too great to cause God to pull back from His love. Think about this. Christ is the highest treasure of heaven and earth. He is the eternal object of His Father's love and his father was willing to give him up, to crush him, to pour out his wrath upon him to redeem us. The next time you doubt God's love, rebuke your heart. There has been no greater expression on earth in history than God sending His Son to us. His only Son. This is the greatest demonstration of His commitment to His people. It was a costly love. So God's love is not just initiating. It's not just costly but it also does something. It accomplishes something. John says it brings us to life. It's a life-giving love. In verse 9, John says that God's goal in sending His Son was that we might live through Him. What's he talking about? He's talking about Christ's own life that's been transferred to us. He sent His Son to obey the stipulations of the covenant perfectly when we couldn't. He sent His Son to pass through death and experience the covenant curses and to come out in resurrection life on the other side. John's saying, all this life is now given to us. We have life in His name. We have life through Him and because of Him. We are made alive internally now, but it's headed somewhere glorious. We are headed toward the final resurrection. Life from the dead, to live fully in the new heavens and the new earth. That's God's gift to us. And John's point is that God's love is why we get that gift. It's because God is love. That's how great His love is. It's a love that brings us to life. Now that's incredible, but John's not finished describing the love of God. Next, he wants to get, us in, in, he wants to get into our kind of thick brains that we did nothing to merit His love. Meaning that God didn't love us because of something in us. Or as he puts it here, because we loved Him first. We didn't. So he says, we could frame it up like this, that God's love is an unsolicited love.
John writes, in this is love, not that we have loved God. He didn't have to say that. But he did. He draws out the negation. And this is love, not, not you, right? You had nothing to do with it. God. God loved us. And this is, you know, if you want to liken my mind to a circuit breaker, this is where it trips for me. The God would love like this, like everything we just talked about, for an utterly unworthy people is absolutely shocking. It's so unlike us. John's point is that our love for God, or our lack thereof, that didn't motivate God to save us. In fact, he says we did not love God. We hated God, in other words, in our hearts. We came out of the womb with a hard-hearted desire to be our own gods, to steal His glory, to answer to no one, to get what we want above all else and whatever it costs others. Our first parents rebelled in the garden, and we've been rebelling as a humanity ever since. So if you think you're too bad off for God to love you, if you think you're too far gone, can I encourage you for a moment? You don't even begin to know how bad you are. You are way worse than you think you are. But get this. It's not a contingent for his love. God does not love because we're lovely. It's the opposite. God loves in order to make us lovely. God loves His own people from Himself. From His own nature. His own nature, which John says in this passage, is love. His love emanates from Him and it cleanses and transforms the unlovely in and through Jesus. And you have to know that. Because if you don't, you won't love like Him. And this means then that, that we have to believe God's love isn't ultimately contingent on us. We have to believe that His love for us is constant. That it cannot be dimmed. That it shines like the sun. That it doesn't grow. It doesn't diminish. It is an eternal love of God that cannot be heightened by any act of ours or, get this, diminished by or lessened by anything in us. Now, can we displease Him? Yes. Can we provoke His severe discipline? Yes, we can and often do. But do you realize that the severity of His discipline is an evidence that God's love for you is as fierce today as it was the day He saved you? If we're really His children, can we ever diminish His love in the slightest? And the answer is no. We can't. But how can God do this? How can he faithfully and justly love the unlovely? Wouldn't God be defiled? Like that judge in the courtroom that lets the guilty go free. Wouldn't his justice be called into question? Well, that's where this final description of love comes in. God's love is not blind to sin. God's love is a propitiating love. It's a propitiating love. John writes in verse 10 that God sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is, is a word that has as its idea, uh, it's in the kind of forgiveness atonement domain, but it's, the idea I think here is that wrath is absorbed so that forgiveness can be granted. Here John is saying that Jesus is that for his people. This means that all of God's wrath that should have come against you, all of that wrath was poured out on his son 
instead of you, instead of me. And we're talking the entire cup of it without a drop left over. Jesus absorbed it all. And God sent him to do it. The son he dearly loved, his only son. This means not just every sin you've committed, not just every sin you committed today, not just every sin you will ever commit, but the entirety of your sinful nature, every false motive has been punished in Christ and completely forgiven by the Father. Now all that's left for you is the full, unabating, unrelenting, Love of God toward you in Christ. The love that works all things for our good. The love that will cherish us for all eternity and lavish us with kindness. And it's begun right now. God loves you like He loves His Son. That's astounding. It's humbling. It's worship-inducing. And it motivates our love. And that's why John draws all this out in verses 9 and 10. He knows that as we come to really believe this about God, or as John says it in, later in chapter 4, as we come to know and to believe the love that God has for us, As we come to that, that our own experience of His love is what enables us to love others. His love, God's love, is the bottomless well that we draw from to water others with love. We know that we are cared for. We know that God has and will meet our needs. We know that we have nothing to fear, ultimately. Then, and only then are we free to love. To love like He intends. And now all of this culminates into our final statement, our final conviction that will drive us to persevere in love. John tells us that love is our inexcusable obligation. Love's our obligation. Look with me in verse 11. He says, Beloved, if God has so loved us, we ought also to love one another. So John ends where he began this passage. He ends by, by telling us to love each other but he says it a little differently. And I don't want you to miss this. He says, if God has loved you like that, and he has, then you ought to love each other like that too. But even that word ought, that sounds a little weak from the original. Here's a little more wooden rendering of this phrase. He says, beloved, if God has loved us so, we ourselves are also obligated to love each other. If God has loved us like this, if God has loved us so, we ourselves are also obligated to love each other. In other words, John wants us to see that in light of the infinite love we've been given, it means that not loving the church is not an option to God. It's our duty. We must love if we're going to claim God's love for us. So why does he hammer us here on this point? Well, John is a good shepherd and he knows our hearts. He knows it's so easy to give ourselves excuses not to love. Am I the only one? We feel it at times. It rises up in our hearts. We think things like, I feel a little out of place here. So I, I'm not going to talk to anybody. I'm just going to kind of go sit in my seat. 
I realize we often feel that way when we come to church, especially if we're on the newer end. But God didn't wait on you, did He? He initiated His love, and He wants you, He expects you to do the same. We shouldn't wait around to be loved first. We should take the first step in introducing ourselves to others and taking interest in others and making sacrifices for others and seeking forgiveness in the home. We initiate because that's how God's loved us. Or how about this excuse that rises up? These people haven't treated me very well, so I'm not going to love them. Or, the church has hurt me in the past, so I'm going to keep my distance. I'm going to kind of keep, keep them out there. I'm going to come, but I'm going to keep them out there. That's implying that you only love if you think people deserve it. Did God love you because you deserved it? No, it's the opposite. And He expects us to forgive freely. He expects us to love the unlovely, even our enemies. How much more then He expects us to love our enemies? Should we love each other here in the church? Should we forgive and love the saints, even if they haven't treated us very well? We're never more like God than when we're loving the unlovely, loving those who don't deserve it, at cost to ourselves. But what if I'm taking advantage of, Clay? Like you're telling me to love like that. Loving freely seems like I'm going to get hurt. Well, you will. Yeah, you will. You'll get hurt. What if Jesus was afraid of being hurt? You wouldn't be saved. But so often we turn around. And we make our love for the church contingent on not being hurt. We tell Jesus that we will obey Him as long as it doesn't involve relational pain. As long as we don't have to feel awkward. As long as we don't have to be uncomfortable in our relationships. But we will certainly be hurt when we love others like Jesus did. But guess what? Jesus knows more than anyone what love costs. He's the one issuing the command. He's the one that's mandating us to love. He knows it's risky. He knows it's often painful. But do you know what? He's in control of that too. Did you know that even the hurt that we experience from one another Even the hurt becomes occasions to grow in our relationship with God, in our display of His love toward others. Even the moments of the most severe relational pain are given to us by God's loving hand. And that pain will break in blessing upon our heads in the hands of Christ. We don't have to be afraid of pain. It's a tool in the good hand of our God to conform us to Christ. So John's saying here that excuses won't fly when we stand before our Lord. This this is a helpful motivation. Because if there's a situation in your life that you're making excuses right now, presently, for why you won't love, you're going to have to stand before Christ and He won't accept your excuses. He won't say, oh wow, they hurt you at Timberlake? Oh well then, you know what? Your life of unforgiveness, that's okay. He's going to show you His hands. You will have missed tremendous opportunity for joy, for fruitfulness, because the excuse has gotten away. John says here that we've got to know 
that love is our inexcusable obligation. The Lord has spared no expense in His love for us, and He is committed to teaching us to love in the same way. He's going to go on in this passage. We don't have time for it right now. We're out of time, but He's going to go on in this passage to say one of the most incredible things in this letter, and I almost had a separate point. I'm going to squeeze it in right here at the end. He's going to go on to say that God's love for us is actually perfected when we learn to love others. What he means is that when God loved us, when he set his love upon us, his love is only brought to completion when it's flowing out of us. That's his end goal. It's not to terminate on you, but it's to change you to become an instrument of his love. So God is committed to us. So we're going to end here today. What a staggering passage on loving the church. Is it hard? Yes. Are there many obstacles? Yes. There are obstacles in my life. I'm sure there's obstacles in your life. But John has thoroughly equipped us. Loving others is John's vision of the good life. It's the best life. The life of joy and abundant fruitfulness. This is why we were created and saved by God. So that His love would be perfected in us. And love will remain. Not just in this life, but far into eternity. In the new heavens and the new earth. This is how we will interact with each other then. We have the tremendous privilege of learning to practice it right now. It'll be imperfect. We'll have setbacks. We'll have to repent often. But God, the love of God, has been set upon us. He is committed to teaching us to love like Him and to bend out the very love of Christ, the love that we've been shown. All right, let's pray. Father, as we bow before you as your church, we are humbled first by your love for us. It's hard to believe that you love us like that. And yet we must bring our hearts in line with what you declare. To open our mouths so that you might fill it with your blessing. We confess the ways that we failed to love. We confess our doubts. And yet we again come to you for mercy. We come confidently. Knowing that you've put your finger on our hearts this morning. We thank you for how you've loved us so patiently, so kindly in Christ. We pray that you would help us rest fully in your love. I pray that you would help renew our motivation to love each other. And I pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.